Well, would you be content if you had everything? Would you be content if you had everything? If you had all the money? Maybe if you had every relationship, or you had all the freedom, or even all the knowledge, would that make you finally content? In 1923, nine of the world's wealthiest men held a meeting at a hotel in Chicago. There were presidents and tycoons of the world's most influential capital systems. The men who met at the hotel knew all the secrets of making and directing money. They individually and collectively, they had it all. Can you imagine just one of those people? But then can you imagine that dinner table or that party at that hotel? They had it all. Wouldn't that be awesome? It's amazing, though, of what they truly had in common. We think of them having something in common like money or power or influence, but, but listen to what they really had in common. The giant or the steel giant Charles Schwab died bankrupt. The gas tycoon Howard Hopskin died clinically insane. The utility giant Samuel Insull died broke and a fugitive overseas. The wheat speculator Arthur Cotton also died abroad broke. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, died in the infamous Sing Sing prison. A presidential cabinet member, Albert Fall, died alone in his home one day after being released from prison. The Wall Street tycoon Jesse Livermore committed suicide. The head of the world's largest monopoly, uh, Ivan Kruger, committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier, committed suicide. Would you be content if you had everything like these men? The results of these men's lives are, are shocking to us, especially when you line all of them up. But it's not surprising, is it? We often think of if we had so many things that then we'd finally be at rest. But we see the scriptural truth that chasing more here inevitably ruins us eternally. And the Bible warns us the opposite, that we should set our hopes on not more, but God who is eternal and existent in one place. This is where the glory of the gospel shines through texts like ours. It's the glory of the gospel is not what you have done for yourself. The glory of the gospel is not what you've brought to yourself or have even built up on your own self, but the glory of the gospel is what God has done in Christ for you, even despite your efforts. The glory of the gospel is that it fuels contentment, not displeasure. Paul finishes his letter to Timothy with, I think we can see clearly, four instructions, four final instructions instructions for this church that has gone awry. And I think around the, the commands within this, that the one unifying um, message, which is why I'm combining all of chapter 6 together, the one thing that continually goes through this chapter is for the charge for this church and all of its different people to be content in God and not to lose hope in the things that they may build up for themselves. The glory of the gospel fuels contentment where they would be charged to find their full hope in God. Now, uh, we, I've said it for months now, this Ephesians church who would have received this letter, the audience of this letter uh, was known to be shipwrecking itself. And for a handful of reasons, they were doing this. And by shipwrecking themselves, they were actually defaming the message of Christ to a watching world. So they were so messy and so sloppy and 
living together and worshiping the wrong things, that they were actually telling and broadcasting to the world that what they hope in actually doesn't mean anything. And so Paul, for his love for that church and for his devotion to that church's, one of that church's elder writes to Timothy and gives a lot of, or a set of correctives. And finally, he gives four things in this final chapter. So Paul grabs the steering wheel, if you will, to encourage Timothy by telling this church to be content in God. What a message that, that should resonate and live on with them as it should with us. There's an old book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It was written by, written by Jeremiah Burroughs, a, uh, a well-known Puritan minister from the 17th century. Honestly, it's a difficult read, but the book is an incredible exploration of the virtue of contentment. It, it provides practical guidance for realizing a deeply rooted satisfaction that can only be held onto by Christ, where you are satisfied when you find your place in God's providence. Now, true contentment doesn't come from external circumstances or possessions. That, well, that's at least the biblical teaching. True, contern, uh, true contentment doesn't find itself in possessions or in achievement, but that's what the rest of the world tells us. If I just had a little bit more, then I would finally rest. Or maybe, maybe some of you are thinking about retirement. If I, if I just worked one more month, oh, maybe then I can get a used fishing boat. Or if I just keep going, or if I get another degree, or if I get another medal on my chest... Then I'll be totally satisfied. Then God will look down on me and say, okay, now I know why. I love you. Friends, my hope is that you'll be taught by the Spirit's word and what it means to be content in Christ and God. The chapter amazingly uses military-type language. Paul used words that belong to an army. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. In verse 12, or I charge you in the presence of God which is the same military term in chapter 1, where he says, charge the rich not to be haughty. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. So I point these out because we often think of contentment as something that passive wimps do. They kind of just give up. You know, you strike out so many times, and I'm just not content, or I'm just content not being a baseball player. But here, Paul uses aggressive intentionally military-type military words to say, no, this is something to reach for when you rest in it. You see that tension there. You don't just sit around and be content, but what Paul says is that you push toward this notion where he says that you ought to fight to be satisfied in God, or you ought to fight to hold on to what God has given you. So how is this church charged to be content? in the same way that how are we charged to be content. I think there are four things here. The first one is that we're to be content with our circumstances. We see this in verses 1 and 2. You and I are to be content in whatever circumstances God has placed us in. You might think of yourself as a mother or as a banker or as a student or as an athlete or something. You know, God has placed you in that circumstance, and you were called to be content in that. Look at how he does this. Several years ago, maybe 20 now, I was sitting on a private jet. Uh, with Randy Johnson, the future Hall of Famer, and at the time he was a pitcher uh, for the Arizona Diamondbacks. And there I was with my dad and Randy Johnson. <laughs> and it was incredible. He, he was just talking to us uh, like normal. We were talking to him. Well, my dad was talking to him like normal. I was just looking at him like, man, you really are tall, and you really are good. And we were talking to him about different things in his life. And my dad was asking him stuff. You know, my dad's a former banker. So he's like, so when your church, because he said that he was a Christian, he said he was going to this Presbyterian church in the Phoenix area. 
And so my dad's like, okay, so when they have like a building project, like do they say, hey man, how's that, how's that new contract working out? And he's like, no, they're, they're pretty good with keeping me. Uh, you know, they just treat me like a normal person even though I'm a head above everyone else. And, and he started talking about his vocation. He said, this isn't something that I'm going to be doing forever. My dad asked him what he thought he might do next. And he's like, you know, I did photography when I was in college. That may be something that I would do, which is amazing to think about. Uh, but he said, you know, right now, I, I just think that God has called me to be a baseball player and have influence in that. He said, he said you know, there's this old Puritan, Puritan idea that all of us are called to something. And right now, I know I'm called to this. And that was incredible on so many levels. Not only because you literally see that guy on SportsCenter, but here he's teaching me, a 13, 14-year-old, a lesson about Puritan theology, about vocation, something that just resonates forever. And you think of, think of the influence that this guy's had when he is content in what his calling is. We often think of professional athletes as just being the boss of whatever room they're around, but he has to submit himself to trainers, submit himself to coaches. He has to submit himself to a catcher who calls a pitch or a general manager who could trade him away the next day, a, a president of the organization or an owner. You know, when he's traded, he can't say, well, I feel called here. They go, well, I don't care. You are now with the Phillies or wherever he went after that. And with this kind of understanding, it's Paul who is saying that you and I are consistently under some kind of authority. That's been the message uh, kind of resonating throughout the, the book of First Timothy. You and I, we're all under some kind of authority. And here, when it comes to our contentment, is to recognize whatever God has placed us under or over, we're to be content and act like a Christian. We're to treat our bosses through providential contentment for the sake of the gospel to be known by them if your boss is an unbeliever or with them if your boss is a believer. Now, in our, in our text case, historians have estimated that half of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves, and some of them called bond servants. And a lot of these were educated and cultural people, but legally, they were not considered persons at all. Uh, they might have had an understanding of the world, but they were called to act in a certain way, either through slavery or being a bond servant. And on the flip side, it's actually the gospel message that freedom from sin in Christ which would certainly appeal to these bondservants and many of them to become believers, by them actually living like they were called to live, they would have a greater understanding and appreciation of what it actually means to be freed from the internal sin in their hearts. When bondservants were able to get away from their household duties, they would very often fellowship in local churches where being a slave was not a handicap, according to Galatians chapter 3. Everyone was led in these Christian churches. But there's, there was a problem in our context. Some, some slaves uh, were using their newfound freedom in Christ where they would then choose to disobey their earthly masters, if not defy their masters. So Paul instructs them that their spiritual freedom in Christ did not alter their social circumstances. Even though they were accepted gracefully, gracefully into the fellowship of the church, he tells them two things, that, that slaves with unbelieving masters should live like Christians. If a bondservant rebels against an unsaved master, Paul's point is that the slave places a shadow or a curtain over the gospel, defaming Christ. This is one reason Paul and the early missionaries didn't go around preaching against the sinful institution of slavery, because such a practice would have branded the church as a militant group, whereas the gospel isn't us going around beating up on our opposition but rather God going around crushing us. 
in calling us to live uniquely regardless of the situation that we find ourselves in. So he does that in verse 1, that slaves with unbelieving masters aren't to sacrifice the the Christian life that they're called to. And secondly, in verse 2, slaves with believing masters. The danger here is that the Christian slave might take advantage of his master because both are Christian. My master is my brother, so I don't have to to treat him like a boss because after all, we're, we're brothers, we're friends. So maybe I can get away with stuff. Since we're equal, he has no right to tell me what to do. You can imagine how this would create a serious problem in both homes and the churches. You can imagine showing up late to work and telling your believing boss, well, you know, we had Bible study last night. You understand how important that is. And isn't that the most important thing, not me being on time, but but going to Bible study? You can imagine how that would just take advantage of the situation at all, where that boss is then going to look at you and go, wait, what does your gospel tell you to do? about authority. If that's your view of authority, what does it mean to submit to the Lord in all things? The applications here uh, can seem endless. I'd imagine from one degree to another, most of us have bosses, and I'd imagine some of you have employees, and the gravity of the gospel isn't that we're freed from our circumstances, however harsh they may be. You think about what it would be to be a slave. You think about what it'd be to be a bondservant for a period of time. Or you might have a tyrannical boss. But what the gospel doesn't call you to do is to live however you want, even though you're free in Christ, but rather to demonstrate what it means to be held captive by the mystery of the gospel, whether you've got a Christian boss or an unchristian boss. The gospel is that we're freed from the penalty of our actions that we brought on ourselves so that we can live righteously under the authority that God has placed us under within the circumstances that God has placed us in, our contentment actually shows more of who Christ is than if we rebelled or took advantage of someone because they were or weren't church members. You can imagine how this will demonstrate to a watching world of what it means to give yourselves over completely to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you've got a horrible boss, that shows the watching world that you understand what hardship is. If you have a good boss, and that still means you understand what it's like to follow a good shepherd. So we see the first message that, that Paul gives this watching church is to be content with your circumstances. The second thing is you're to be content with your message. The church itself, so you think of the church as a whole, not just individual people, but a collection of people, that that church is to be content with the message that has been provided to that church. Paul opened First Timothy with warnings about false teachers. See that in chapter 1, verse 3. And he even rebutted some of those dangerous teachings. We see that in chapter 4. So he comes back to the same theme here where he assumes that there will be clear dividing markers between what is false and what is sound teaching. And this is a helpful way for us in any age that we find ourselves where there's this constant desire of blurring biblical doctrine with cultural pushes or cultural desires. Paul, though, has no place for compromise when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ or the orthodox teachings going out within the church. And that's that's why it's clear that the elders must constantly oversee what's taught, because false doctrines are constantly looking to infiltrate the church. You think of what Satan's real aim is. We often think it's for him to throw pitchforks at people in faraway places. But what, what what would Satan love more than to infiltrate people who call themselves Christians and to cause them to doubt the goodness of God? Like we're reminded in Genesis 3, just that little speck. So in many ways, this is what the charge of an elder is, is to be watchful, 
to be careful. Who's teaching what? Who's saying what? What's coming from the pulpit? What's coming in from one of the classrooms? What's being taught at VBS? Because false doctrines easily slip in, causing Christians to be discontent and the good old news of the Scriptures, to want to hold on to something that seems fresh and enlightening and cool. It, it'll be commonplace for the church to become discontent with biblical truth, constantly asking itself, what's next? Or we want something more applicable. This is why I'm very thankful for you all in this church, where the constant charge given to me by you guys is to keep preaching the Bible, keep preaching the gospel, keep studying, keep learning and talking to us. Where Paul's description, though, of false teachers becomes specific. He's, he's telling them to be content in the message that has been delivered down generation after generation, but watch out for a couple of particular things. The first mark is that these false teachers have refused to hold on to what it says, the sound words of our Lord and Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. It's in verse 3. Where the Bible's teaching is godly and it promotes godliness. And in Isaiah, the first test of any teacher was to, quote, to, to know the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. That's in Isaiah chapter 8. It's important that a church follow the pattern of the sound words that were given to them, as it said in 2 Timothy, where a discontent church is a church that is not satisfied by Scripture alone, but other things that may seem good. A lot of churches, I think, wrongly waste their time on things that are good, according to not only Christians, but also the world. Very often, churches waste their time on making their church all about leadership development or even health. You know, you build a workout center on the outside of the church. Why? Is that really what we're partially about? Go to a park. Walk around other people and share the gospel with them. Or maybe even the thing that was cool in, in my time in the 90s was fifth quarter. You know, get kids off the street and inside the church and have fun at 10 p.m. Those are good things. Maybe our church needs a pickleball ministry. You know, then we can really, then we can really do what's holding back the gospel. Rather, we're to be content in the message. A second mark, so they first aren't holding on to the sound words of Jesus Christ, teaching that accords itself with godliness. The second mark is the teacher's own attitude. Instead of being humble, the false teacher is proud or puffed up in his own wisdom, yet he has nothing to be proud of because it says he doesn't know anything. The true mark of a fool, he thinks he knows what he's talking about, but according to the word, he actually has no idea what he's talking about. And they walk around like this. A believer who understands the word will have a burning heart, for the word to be part of them, not, not a big head. This conceited attitude, it says, causes a teacher to argue about minor matters instead of feeding on the wholesome words of Christ. And you might say he gets sick of the tiny little questions, where the word craving here means that they are filled with a morbid desire or sick. And the result of his teaching is his own envy, his own dissension, his own slander, his own evil suspicions, his own constant friction among the saints. We, we see this far too often of, of pastors who spend decades in ministry and then something just happens their last 10 years where, where it's now like slowly they're turning on the teaching that they've been doing for the previous 30 or 40 years because they just got dissatisfied with it and they want to talk about all these 
meaningless stuff instead of the gospel that has saved people from the beginning. And the tragedy of all this is the people, in verse 5, who are now deprived from the truth, where this false teacher is talking about stuff and depriving people from truth while they think that they're discovering truth. They finally have this new idea that no one else has ever thought of before. And in reality, there's nothing new under the sun. They think, they, they think that the regular arguments are for their meeting times or during which they exchange their ignorance. These are the means of growing in grace they might talk about. But meanwhile, the result is actually a total loss of character. The issue here is the church and its people have veered off the message by thinking the pure truth of God's revealed word is not enough for them. The regular thought of there's just so much more to know or learn, there's so many different ways that you and I can grow, that's their new anthem. And what Paul is saying is this is a church that is shipwrecking itself. And you need to watch out for this by being content, not in these messengers, but in the message. Timothy is told here to teach and urge these things, not new things, not cool things, or even expose people to other ideas, giving them options of what they could hold. You know, here are the five historical views of the dating of the book of Revelation. No, no, no. Teach them these things of which they're saved. Friends, how how should you and I walk away from this? I want you to really ask yourself, And I'm asking you to also answer for yourself, are you content in God's word? Are you really content in God's word? Is God's word what's called sufficient? Do you actually think God's word alone is sufficient for you to grow in godliness? And is God's word sufficient for our church to grow in holiness? Do you really think that? Or are you really sidetracked from yeah, I mean, we have God's Word, but but we also need this new book. Or we have God's Word, but we also need this this new program. Everyone else is doing it, and five more people come. We've got to have this. Rather than trusting what God has given us, which is himself revealed through his Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Going back to the beginning, would you be content if you had everything? What the word promises to you is to make you complete in your knowledge and understanding of Christ, to where you'd be equipped, it says, for every good work. Scripture is sufficient in that it is the only inspired and errant and therefore final authority for Christians for faith and godliness, with all other authorities being subservient to Scripture. Paul calls the church to be content with the message of Scripture. Part of the reason why uh, those of us who organize our worship gatherings the way we do is because we actually think, and I've just grown more and more firm like an an eagle claw that has, you know, its food on the end. It's never going to let it up. More and more that the weekly gathering of us coming in after a week or before the next week is what you and I are regularly given and also what you and I regularly need. To the point when we do come to worship, we don't need to be caught up in here's a new cool thing or here's an edgy kind of thing we do. Now, I'm glad we have electricity and amplification. I'm glad we have an electric guitar and a bass guitar and a piano that, that is new when it comes to church history. Just throw that out there. But, 
the way we organize our worship service is actually the, the regular reminder of the gospel, where we start out thinking about God, thinking about ourselves, then confessing of who we are, and then being reminded that it is Christ who saves us, not ourselves, and we exalt him within the service to where we point ourselves to the one who came and suffered and gave us new life to the point where then we respond in faith. And then what do we do seven days later? The same thing again. And then what do we do after that? The same thing again. For those of you with animals, your animal shows up or wakes you up every morning and wants to do the same thing, doesn't it? Why? Because they want to keep living. And you and I show up regularly on the same basis, trusting in this message from the Scriptures. Why? Because it sustains us. It builds up walls like a fortress against evil. And it gives us joy to the very end. So he tells us to be content with the message. The church is to be content with the message. The, the third thing that he tells us in his parting words is to be content with your money. He, he goes at the heart here. This is in verses 6 through 10 and then also in verses 17 through 19. So we're to be content with our money. There's a blend in this chapter of false teachers being known for their greed and also a call for Christians in this church to not be known by their greed. And with both of this, the call is clear. We're to be content with what God has financially placed in our lives. False teachers supposed uh, that godliness is the way of financial gain. If I want to be rich, I need to be godly. And false teachers would use their religious profession as a means to make money. And it's awful to see this today. These religious racketeers prey on naive people, promising them help while just taking their money and then leaving town. So to warn Timothy and then to warn us about the dangers of covetousness, wanting something that doesn't belong to you, Paul shared four facts in this. He gives four quick facts for us. The first one's in verse 6. Wealth does not bring contentment. The word contentment means satisfaction in one's circumstances. True contentment comes from godliness in the heart, not wealth in the wallet. And the scriptures repeatedly show people who are dependent on material things for peace and assurance never being satisfied. The second thing is in verse 7. Wealth is not lasting. When someone's spirit leaves his body at death, he leaves everything else behind. The third thing is in verse 8. Our basic needs are easily met. Food and covering, which is meaning clothing or shelter, food and covering are basic needs. You really don't need much. I like watching uh, modern westerns, not old westerns. I don't think they're that cool. Modern westerns. And I'm amazed how people would just like live in a tent. <laughs> you can't do that. Like I have, a, I have a really nice mattress to where anywhere I go and I sleep on someone else's mattress, I'm like, God, what are you, a caveman? What is happening here? But what do you and I need to survive? Shelter and food. Isn't it beautiful that in the gospel this is what God gives us? Safety under the care of Christ and food being nourished by him. Where you and I are reminded through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper of of all that is put on the table because of all that has been brought near to him. Our basic needs are easily met. So we shouldn't flee greed or more because we have what we need. The fourth thing is this in verses 9 through 10. The desire for wealth, the desire for wealth, always leads to sin. They that will be rich is the accurate translation here. It describes a person who must have more and more material things to be happy and feel successful. But riches are a trap. They lead to bondage, not freedom. 
The result Paul describes very vividly in verse 9. It says, harmful desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's a picture of a man drowning. Now there's a charge here for us. This, this is revealed about false teachers, but there's a charge here for us too in verses 17 through 19. The previous section, verses 6 through 10, concern those desiring to be rich, but this concentrates on those who are already rich. Paul points out two dangers of those who are already rich. They can become arrogant or they can become dependent. They can become arrogant and thinking, look what I did for myself, or they become dependent, recognizing that what they came from, they were just fine there too. It's too easy for those who have material possessions to imagine that money will secure anything and a true hope in God is left behind. Now, to be clear, there's, there's no suggestion here that riches themselves corrupt or that people should not enjoy what God has given them, but that everything, even your hard-earned money, comes from God. So it's dangerous when you pursue more and more. The demands on wealthy people are clear. They must be good. That's what the text says. You must be good with what God has given you, and you must be generous with what God has given you. The statement in verse 19 is uh, reminiscent of the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, where there is a mixture of metaphors between treasure and a good foundation. But the contrast is clear between life propped up by material resources and true life, which will give continual uh, life to the age to come. It's amazing how uh, material wealth and greed is talked about throughout the scriptures. Uh, when, when I was at a previous church in Albuquerque, we were preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes and one of the passages that I was tasked with preaching um, was kind of in the middle of Ecclesiastes where it gave, it gave two uh, pictures of what greed looks like in people's lives. So this is what greed looks like and, and this is what greed looks like. And the, the first example in, this, in that particular passage shows uh, a greedy man. A greedy man is worse than a man who has a thousand kids and isn't happy. A greedy man is worse than someone who has a thousand kids and isn't happy. Now, a lot of you have a lot of kids, and I know that you're happy. Like, I know that you're tired. But I know at the end of the day, isn't it great? I mean, we have one, and I like it. I want to have five more. Those of you who are grandparents, something incredible happens to grandparents. They go crazy. All of a sudden, they're looking at something that is kind of from them, but not really from them, and they're so happy. They're constantly going, look at my kid. He fell down, but that's my grandkid. You know, they go to a t-ball game and they strike out at t-ball and they're like, that's my grandkid. It's something just crazy happens. And it shows something so depraved when a parent or a grandparent would look at all the children that God gave them and hates them. Imagine having 100 grandkids. Some of you have like near 20 you love it, don't you? You don't know their names, but you love it. It's so great. Imagine having a hundred. Wouldn't that be so cool? And how awful is it if that man or that woman just goes, I don't like it. That's worse than greed. Or that greed is worse than that. The other analogy he gives is a greedy man is worse off than a baby who dies at childbirth. Exiting the womb, opening the eyes, taking a breath, and dying. Being greedy is worse than that. And what Paul is telling this church, who is shipwrecking itself, 
is to be very careful. You can have everything in Christ or just internally suffer. And it's exposed through your wallet. It's shown through your wallet. It's shown through your heart that keeps checking the checking account, that keeps checking the stock options, that keeps thinking, if, we, if I had that, if I had that house, if my house had five bedrooms, oh man. So he says, be content with your money. Finally, he says, this is a charge to Timothy, be content, Timothy, with your ministry. It's the final part of this passage, be content with your ministry. This is in verses 11 through 16 and verses 20 through 21. So while caring for his, t- his own people, Timothy needs to care for his own soul. It says in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching, meaning your heart and your doctrine. The phrase, but as for you, in verse 11, shows a contrast between Timothy and these false teachers. He says, watch out for those guys, but as for you, Timothy, do this. They were men of the world, but Timothy is called here a man of God. A man of God. The special designation that was given to Moses pretty cool. Samuel, really great. Elijah and David, good company. How can he hold on to the title, a man of God? Well, Paul gives four warnings to Timothy that if obeyed, would assure him success in ministry and continued testimony. Oftentimes, the church is called to live in such a way that the watching world will recognize the gospel. And oftentimes, the pastors of those churches are also called to act a certain way in order to give an example to the watching world. And in this way, the call to be content comes through four things. The first one in verse 11 is to flee. There are times when running away is a mark of cowardice. Not in this case. There are times when fleeing is a mark of wisdom and a means of victory. The word flee that Paul uses means separating himself from the sins of false teachers. Where basically, he's to disunite from those who are teaching false things. Unity is not always good, and not all division is bad. There are times when a servant of God should take a stand against false doctrine and godless practices and actually separate himself socially or ecclesiastically, separate himself from these false teachers. The second thing is to pursue, so to flee and then to pursue. Separation without growth becomes isolation. He shouldn't just run into the woods, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, but rather he should aim to grow, to pursue godliness, where the call is to cultivate these graces of the Spirit in his life, or else he'll be known for only what he opposes rather than what he proposes. He's to pursue righteousness, also known as personal integrity. He's to pursue godliness, also known as holiness. His character and his conduct, his life and his doctrine, are to show themselves through pursuing faith and love, also known as sacrifices for others. He's to pursue patience, also known as endurance, sticking uh, sticking to it when the going is tough, a courage that continues in hard places, and a gentleness, or also known as power under self-control, will shine itself to a watching world. So he's to flee, he's to pursue, and then third, in verses 12 through 16, he's to fight. This, This book started with Paul telling Timothy to get in there and straighten this church out. He's to fight. This verb means to keep on fighting. It's a word from which we get our English word agonize. And it applies to both athletes and soldiers. 
It's described a person straining and giving his best to win a prize or to win a battle. And this fight is not between believers. He's not to go conquer the people who are given to him in salvation. It's between a person of God and the enemy around him. He's fighting to defend the faith, that body of truth deposited with the church. Like Nehemiah of the prophets, Christians today need to have a a trowel in one hand for building and a sword in the other hand for battling. And it's sad when some Christians spend much of their time fighting the enemy that they have no time to do their work and build the church. And on the other hand, if you don't take a stand and guard and oppose the enemy, what you have built could be taken from you. What is this that encourages us to battle? What is this that encourages Timothy to keep fighting on? It says there in the text that he is one who has eternal life. These people have eternal life. They have the trust in that they are on the right side of history and need to take hold of it and let it work itself out through their experience. We've, we've been called by God, the same God who called him to himself, to fight for the truth that was entrusted to the church. And so we have assurance of this victory. Another encouragement that he has in the battle is the witness of Jesus Christ, the Savior. He witnessed a good confession in verse 13 before Pontius Pilate and did not relent before the enemy. If there was ever a time to just back down a little bit or find a loophole in the law instead of allowing himself to be given over in death for the sacrifice of his people, he's God after all. Is there anything that he could do? No. Gave himself. He fought for the truth. He didn't allow someone to lie about him. He knew that God the Father was with him and watching over him and that he would be raised from the dead. It was God who makes all things alive, this, this text says, who is caring for us. So we, we don't need to fear when we're in the, in the thick of ministry feeling the temptation to cave. When you all might read the Bible with one another at Starbucks or wherever, you invite someone into your home and they, and they just say something that's a little unorthodox and you're like, oh, I don't want this to be awkward. Know that you have the Lord on your side. You have the armor of Christ upon you. And you have the truth that has been entrusted to the saints. And so the courage that, that Timothy is to fight from is not from his own strength and his might, but under the confession that even Christ Jesus said who he was. And Christ Jesus said, Timothy, you are mine. Now get in there and speak. Ministry is no place for timidness because Christ Jesus and his bold confession actually means something eternally. Verses 13 and 14, it shows that Paul charges Timothy with this command and and uses binding holy language. This is not just good advice. This is a command from an apostle to an elder in the name of Christ Jesus who will appear again and again and hold this elder and other elders accountable to the task of their fight for truth. The only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is immortal, the unseen, it's him who this charge is given in the name of, the unchanging giver of life. And his truth doesn't change. His message doesn't change. Timothy, take courage. Timothy, fight. Timothy, pursue. Timothy, flee evil doctrine because the unchanging truth of the unchanging God will outlast all evil. No need for discontentment. No need for anything else. 
because he's wearing and proclaiming the armor of God to a people who either relish it or they need to see it. And if you're a coward here, then what you're testifying to truly means nothing to the watching world. Finally, he says, be faithful. Verses 20 through 21, be faithful. He's to fight and he's to be faithful. It was Timothy's duty to guard the deposit and pass it down to others who would continue to pass it down to others. You see this brought out in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. This is God's way of protecting the truth, spreading it around the world. We are stewards of the doctrines of the faith, and God expects us to be faithful in sharing his good news. Paul summarized all the theological junk that they were encountering with one devastating phrase. What was happening in this church? What were happening in other churches around it? What was being talked about that Timothy needed to be faithful in fighting against and fleeing from and pursuing in holiness? What were they talking about? A devastating phrase, profane in vain babblings. A godless mixture of contradictory notions. So in conclusion, would you be content if you had everything? Would you be content if you had everything? Well, the good news is, is that those of you who are in Christ, you do have everything. Eternal life was given to you by the blood of a slain lamb, a perfect, sinless, spotless lamb who was raised up on a cross, hammered into cursed wood, crowned with thorns, pummeled into a hole, and stabbed from the side. He suffered. Do you need more? He was placed in a tomb, dead. Not kind of dead, but really dead. And then he was, le- he was so dead that he was left there. They weren't watching him to see if he would wake up all of a sudden. They left him there. He died as a sacrifice. Christian, for you, you need more than that? On the third day, he was raised from death, conquering all the consequence of sin. Do you need more than that? He then went on to preach for 40 more days, telling everyone who believed in him alone to save them from the righteous wrath of God will be saved by their turning from their sins, submitting themselves to him as Lord. That's all. You think of that that kind of exchange? He offers you eternal life in exchange for you to join his side. The conquering hero of the world wants you on his team and you get eternal life from that? Do you need any more? He ascended into heaven, where he is now. Whether you like it or not, he rules and reigns over you. He rules over you. He reigns over you. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you may not feel like someone is ruling and reigning over you. Oftentimes, we we just feel like we're in this chaos theory of life. But this ruler and reigner who's in heaven, you may find him to be far away, but you need to know the message of the gospel is that he will come again. And if you continue to deny him, Lordship over your life. If you continue to deny him the overwhelming love and grace of his presence over your life, when he comes again, he promises to judge you. He'll come to judge. And you'll be judged, amazingly, based on your own contentment. Do you need more than him? Good luck when he comes. The message of the gospel is, if you find yourself needing him, It is him, the one who comes for you, to where when he will come again, it will not be to judge you because that's already been placed on his own shoulders at the cross, but you'll have eternal life 
the fulfillment of all contentment that we find ourselves in. So friends, do you want them? Or is there something more?